Good evening, folks, on this Saturday, the 13th day of January 2024. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and what a week it's been. Let's start off our look back with the most recent updates in the uh, continuing escalation in World War III. And it looks like Big Brother and those that are pulling the Biden puppet strings have pulled out the stops. Just after midnight Eastern time Friday morning, reports began to come out of the Middle East about how Yemen airspace had become evacuated. No temps for commercial no-fly zones had been issued, and essentially there's nothing flying over the area except a whole lot of missiles. And while early reports stated that Iran, Syria, and various pro-Iranian groups in Iraq have declared their unconditional support for Yemen, it became clear that there was a U.S.-British airstrike being unleashed by naval forces in the area against targets in Yemen, a whole lot of them. An early headline from the U.K.'s Daily Mail said, Three hours of fire and fury. How U.S. and U.K. have unleashed over 100 missiles, at that point anyway, on more than 60 Houthi targets, including jets, warships, and a sub, in what they called a meticulously planned set of strikes on the Iranian-backed rebels in Yemen. This after a number of attacks, including the reported seizure of a U.S. flag merchant vessel by either Iran or groups allegedly backed by Iran. A subsequent banner headline simply said, Red Sea of Blood. Quoting an official Air Force statement, the Daily Mail says that these strikes were, quote, comprised of coalition air and maritime strike and support assets from across the region, including U.S. Naval Forces, Central Command aircraft, and Tomahawk land attack missiles launched from surface and subsurface platforms. And, says the Daily Mail, it's understood that the U.S. strikes were authorized by the Biden Fuhrer earlier this week. Hey, who could have seen that coming? And that U.S. Defense Secretary, sick, Lloyd Austin, the AWOL, allegedly, and do you believe this, gave the final go-ahead on Thursday from his hospital bed where he's being treated. Yeah, sure. Ain't that convenient. But where the plot really begins to thicken is the follow-up story. The Daily Mail is again typical. Biden faces fury, it says. What? From the left, can you believe it, for launching those airstrikes on Houthi targets in Yemen without going to Congress. Well, since when is that an issue? None of them have paid any attention to the Constitution since the early 1940s. Well, it says, though, Democrats rage at the unacceptable violation of the Constitution. Yeah, I guess all the rest of them have been acceptable. While Turkey accuses the U.S. and the U.K. of turning the Red Sea into a bloodbath. Meanwhile, Donald Trump lambasts the Biden Fuhrer for, quote, dropping bombs all over the Middle East again, instead of focusing on the continued invasion of the U.S. via the southern border. He doesn't say it. I will, because it's obvious. They sure are using up a hell of a lot of ordnance that might come in handy if the U.S. ever does decide to actually defend itself. But this is telling. The leftist progressives on Capitol Hill, known collectivistly as the squad, responded with fury because Biden didn't seek their approval or, well, Congress's, which is the same thing. First, before ordering the strikes, said far-left California Communist Representative Ro Khanna, the president needs to come to Congress before launching an airstrike against the Houthis in Yemen and involving us in another Middle East conflict. For over a month, he consulted an international coalition to plan them, but never came to Congress to seek authorization as required by Article 1 of the Constitution, unquote. And isn't it amazing? They just now picked that thing up and read a tiny part of it, which tells me, folks, that there is a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Missouri squad nut Cory Bush called the strikes illegal and told Biden to stop the bombing and do better by us. And leftist after leftist after leftist suddenly somehow managed to find Article 1. Who could have imagined such a thing? And again, I'll say it, that in itself is telling. 
It's almost like they got the memo on one aspect of this. It's time to ditch the senile liability puppet. So this does look, folks, like it's developing into one of those watershed events that was pre-programmed to be a major turning point, or at least a rollout of another major duck-and-cover operation. What I can't see is even dumbed-down leftists being clueless enough to rally behind a senile hair sniffer to lead them into battle. So even if some of the useful idiots still seem to believe that any war is a good war when it comes to uniting people behind the so-called commander-in-chief, well, that would seem a strategy destined to backfire. But the truth is, folks, I think it goes deeper than that. This looks like a deep state plot to say, hey, here's how we ditch the senile guy once and for all without having to go through the embarrassment of a 25th Amendment circus or an impeachment for who knows how many crimes that are actually easily provable. Let's just bury all that, too. And either way, we still get our World War III escalation. They still obviously have a few things to work out. Maybe it's a done deal at this point. Like how do they ditch the hooker in waiting and avoid having an all-too-obvious repeat of the same incompetence problem? But I got an increasingly strong suspicion that we're going to see all of that start to play out rapidly and in very short order. From there, let's back up a bit and start chronologically from earlier in the week with the rest of the news, because otherwise it's tough to even make any semblance of sense of it, because the simple single word descriptor remains insane. But if there is any kind of pattern in the madness, it certainly seems to have to do with things that have been hidden for so long, ultimately being revealed, almost like maggots coming out of a corpse. Let's get one high-profile example out of the way right up front. There has been more revelation of the Epstein tapes, the Epstein lies, the Epstein cover-up, and even the Daily Mail had to say it this way in a headline that's been revised about four times since I started looking. More high-profile revelations, but still nothing that really amounts to a bombshell that we didn't already know, even if much of the waste stream hasn't spent too much time at all talking about it, unless, of course, it has to do with Donald Trump. And, of course, Prince Andrew is toast. Boeing, on the other hand, isn't exactly toast, but the 737 MAX series might be. Shares tumbled, said stories on Monday morning, in pre-market trading in New York after a shocking incident in flight on Friday evening when a mid-cabin exit door literally ripped off the Boeing 737 MAX 9 Alaskan Airlines jetliner, scaring the you-know-what out of passengers, many of whom wrote panic letters to their loved ones saying, this is it, we're all toast, and the jet made an emergency landing. There were no serious injuries, says general coverage, unless you count shortened lifespans, and cell phones sucked out at 16,000 feet. Worse still for Boeing and its supplier, Spirit Aerosystems, there are a whole lot of pictures and videos online. Both the U.S. FAA and the European Union Aviation Safety Agency have grounded the jets for inspections. So major backups at Seattle-Tacoma are part of the fallout. And reports from Bloomberg Intelligence's George Ferguson and Melissa Balzano suggest that the mid-cabin exit door that ripped off the plane in flight, quote, probably stems from a manufacturing oversight, a sign of deficiency at Boeing's key supplier, Spirit Aerosystems. Said the analysis, manufacturing, training, and oversight appear to be lacking. And uh, all of this, they noted, has become a, quote, unsettling pattern. By the way, since the 737 MAX has been in service in general since 2015 without a similar incident, but this one was manufactured more recently, hmm, wonder if there's a dot to be connected there. Oh, well, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The headlines seem to suggest the big deal is that Boeing shares are down almost 9%. Spirit Aerosystems was hit over twice that. 
Well, competitor Airbus is up a teeny bit this morning. Here's another Monday morning quick sign of the times from Zero Hedge. The U.S. manufacturing sector slump has accelerated in December. In fact, U.S. manufacturing assessed saw only two months of the entire year of 2023 that were not in contraction, and the year ended on a decidedly poor note as well, while the final December print dropped to 47.9, well into contraction. And across the board, they said it was ugly. What with renewed contraction and output, orders fell at a sharper pace. Rates of inflation, here's a shocker, folks, picked up. And all of this resulted in the joint fastest drop in employment since June of 2020. wonder what was happening then. There's a whole lot in here from Chris Williamson, chief business economist at S&P Global Momentum Intelligence, who said that U.S. manufacturers ended the year on a sour note. The slowdown is spreading to the labor market, what with factories cutting back sharply on their purchases of inputs in December. Suppliers were also less busy on average, yada, yada, yada. And given current trends, all of this points to, quote, downside risk to production, employment, and prices as we head into 2024. Says Tyler Durden for Zero Hedge, not exactly the Goldilocks soft landing everyone was uh, believing, hoping for. On the different aspects of what just might be the very same great big whopping lie. We'll start with this one from the Burning Platform, courtesy of Alex Berenson. You can't make this stuff up, he says. The solution to jab failure, in other words, the Zyklon B poison poke injection, you know it, more jab failure. The headline actually says the AARP just told his 38 million members to go out and get their eighth. That's one more than seven shot of mRNA. And given the headline here, he notes you just have to ask, is the lobbying group for older Americans rightfully called the AARP or maybe the AARP Pfizer? Because they just told their nearly 38 million members that they'd better hustle out and get the next COVID jab, even if they've already had five boosters. Meaning this is the eighth, yep, you heard that right, eighth shot of mRNA that the pushers are pushing. There's a lot of hoo-ha this morning about the fact that America's biggest military trader was out of commission. I can't help but think maybe the U.S. was better off for a little while anyway. Except for the obvious, of course. You know whoever was filling in was no better. But on Friday, it says the pentagram revealed that Defense Secretary Sick Lloyd Austin, the so-called top defense official, what a lie, in the nation, was admitted to a D.C. hospital on Monday following complications from elective surgery, something the DOD managed to keep secret for four full days. They reiterated that it was due to complications from that undisclosed elective medical procedure, and he's expected to resume his full duties. Well, now that we've told you about it, maybe later today. Meanwhile, others aren't quite so sanguine. The Pentagon Press Association, PPA, sent a letter from its board of directors to Austin's personnel on Friday evening expressing significant concern about DODs having hidden the news. Their later says, we're writing to express our significant concerns about the Defense Department, sick, and its failure to notify the public and media about Lloyd Austin's current hospitalization and the fact that he's been at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center for four days, and the Pentagon is only now alerting the public late on Friday is an outrage because it falls far below normal disclosure standards that are customary by other federal departments when senior officials undergo either medical procedures or are temporarily incapacitated because, hey, say it with the folks, the public has a right to know when U.S. cabinet officials, members, or others are hospitalized under anesthesia or their duties are being delegated as a result of any medical procedure. That's been practiced even up to the level of the uh, presidency. Well, when it was a real office, anyway. 
<laughs> now the fake is senile, permanently incapacitated, and they've been leaving him in there anyway. The Daily Mail's coverage, on the other hand, focuses on the real president. And it says in their headline, Trump says defense secretary sick Lloyd Austin should be fired immediately for dereliction of duty after that mysterious ICU stint. Hey, they didn't tell us that, did they? That was kept hidden from the White House even. <laughs> Not that anybody of importance there would have even known. Trump, they say, expressed his anger on True Social, claiming Austin's failure to disclose his whereabouts in the hospital was grounds for immediate dismissal. Of course, treason would be too, folks, if we still cared about things like that. But Trump pointed out that even Austin's deputy was seemingly kept in the dark about his whereabouts. And this, folks, would almost be funny if it wasn't so serious. The Daily Mail includes a big picture of the deputy defense secretary, his subordinate, Kathleen Hicks, who was vacationing in Puerto Rico while her boss was sick in intensive care. This comment from Trump, though, is at least telling. He said concerning Austin, he has performed poorly, gee, do you think, and should have been dismissed long ago, along with general, he puts it in quotes, appropriately, Marxist Millie, he didn't spell that right, and for many reasons, but in particular the catastrophic surrender in Afghanistan, perhaps the most embarrassing moment in the history of our country, he added. And, says the piece, Trump has joined the growing calls for the Biden Fuhrer to fire Austin, who was admitted to, are you ready for this, folks, intensive care at Walter Reed Medical Center on January the 1st. But it wasn't until days later that many in the Pentagon and even the White House learned of his condition. When you see a cover-up like this, and the fact that he was in intensive care, and the fact that this is the same guy who ordered all of these soldiers, sailors, marines, and aviators to take the Zyklon B injection, I gotta wonder, was he actually stupid enough to take his own satanic advice? And is that part of the reason why this cover-up is so intense? Or is it something else? I guess one thing we know is, they're not about to tell us. By Tuesday, there was a story up that I might normally have skipped over, but it was so illustrative, I felt like it needed some attention. This comes from Zero Hedge, and originally from Jack Phillips at the Epoch Times. Trump, it says, warns of big trouble if the Supreme Court rules against ballot access. In other words, if they throw what's left of the concept of the Constitutional Republic in the trash can, and along with it, even the flatulent claim that we have a democracy. And honestly, this is so self-evidently obvious that back when we had a rule of law, the Cretans in Colorado and those in Maine that put up with this crap would have been publicly tarred and feathered for even suggesting that the rest of the public would be stupid enough to go along with them. So honestly, that's not what I think is interesting here. Here's the line in the piece that sets it up. During a rally on January the 5th, the president, you know, the one that was actually elected, told a rally in Iowa that he hopes, quote, we get fair treatment because if we don't, our country's in big, big trouble. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Unquote. Remember the leftist knee-jerk response? If not, you will. They call that a dog whistle, right? They call that insurrection. How dare the president suggest what everybody would have once thought was patently obvious and even undeniable. So it leaves your host to make a prediction, a bold prediction. And folks, this doesn't require any particular prescience. No, it's certainly not prophecy. As a matter of fact, I didn't even look online to do a web search because I suspect it's probably already happened. But trust me, as of this recording, I hadn't seen it yet, but I expect to. The left will get their talking points from the Ministry of Truth, and they'll say in unison that Trump is reaching out to his domestic, violent, extremist, right-wing, MAGA crowd and triggering them. Yeah, how dare he? He's warning them about the civil war they're jonesing for. 
How's that for irony? How's that for obvious? And this is probably true as well. They're already looking for it, as a matter of fact. They'll find some Soros puppet DA somewhere that'll try to charge him with a crime for even suggesting such a thing. And the only thing that would stand in the way there is that most of them already know that'll backfire. So here we go. If they go ahead and do it anyway, what does that tell you? Oh, yeah, they're pushing for exactly what he's warning about. But wait, there's more. This time, it's the Daily Mail and another bit of far-left spin that helps to uh, define the landscape. We'll start with the headline. Trump says he wants, oh, can you believe this guy? He wants the economy to crash sometime in the next 12 months so that it hurts the Biden cures, quote-unquote, election chances. <laughs> Ponder the irony of that, folks. Down in the story here, it says that Trump, speaking with Lou Dobbs, who has long supported the, quote, former president, questioned Trump about what measures he might introduce to help those struggling with the torpedoed economy post-election rig. And they reiterate, Trump candidly mentioned his hope for that crash in order to harm the Biden Fuhrer, and you know that's not what they called him, and improve his own chances in the upcoming election. Bull, you know what? Because, folks, that is not what he said. Here's the quote, though. Quote, when there's a crash, and he's right, it's coming sooner or later. Your host has said for years now that once a die is cast, the longer it's delayed, the worse the collapse ultimately ends up being. Because the measures that they use to delay the inevitable only add more fuel to the fire, only make the ultimate crash that much bigger still. This one was due back in 2008, if you understand anything about economics. And what we're on the train tracks now, headed right for the cliff, is one literally for the history books. Everybody, including President Trump, knows that. So here again is the actual quote. When there's a crash, he said, I hope it's going to be during these next 12 months, because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover, said Trump. The one president I just don't want to be, Herbert Hoover, unquote. And I think he knows it, because it's obvious. If somehow or other he manages to get in, that is exactly the next card that they'll play or a lever that they'll pull. They'll pull out the stops and they'll bring it down. And it won't be hard at all because all it takes at this point is to remove the fatal toothpick and it's coming down. And the big banksters and those who are pulling the strings will profit handsomely all the way down. But again, the common theme here is that if Trump comes right out and says the obvious and everybody knows it, well, that too is cause for blaming him. And on that score, it's certainly fair to point out that Trump is not blameless because he did, in fact, kick the can down the road and accelerate the inevitable, too, even if the final collapse didn't yet, anyway, happen on his watch. He told Lou Dobbs that, quote, we have an economy that is incredible. Hmm? Oh, it's incredible, all right. Back to the quote. We have an economy that's so fragile, and the only reason it's running now is it's running off the fumes of what we did. What the Trump administration did, it's just running off the fumes, unquote. By the way, the rest of the story by the Daily Mail did actually have to come out and admit that inflation, averaged over their respective terms, is about three times worse. And that's official numbers, folks, not counting what people see when they go to the grocery store since the coup and it was under Trump. And they'll admit that polls say, and I'm quoting here, most Americans say they are worse off under Bidenomics. Only a quarter think they're better off, and you can guess who those are and who's paying their bills. But meanwhile, 82% say they can see price increases as a major economic stress factor. Yeah, folks, just wait till they figure out what Ludwig von Mises meant by the crack-up boom.
From there, a couple of looks at a story that, again, we've known about for a long time, one way or another. But now, finally, pieces of it are starting to come out. The headline from Zero Hedge, summarizing a number of stories on the web, says, Fanny Gate widens. Yep, it's the Atlanta Trump prosecutor's alleged DA lover who met with White House counsel before the indictment. Which indictment? Well, it's kind of hard to keep track, but one of them at least that is all about covering up for the rigged election and subsequent coup and punishing those who aren't already in a gulag. The story says Fulton County District Attorney Fanny Willis, and guess who put her there, hired her secret lover to serve as special prosecutor in the Georgia racketeering case against Donald Trump and 18 other defendants. This according to a Monday filing on behalf of Mike Roman, a defendant who led Election Day operations for the Trump campaign in 2020. Quote, the district attorney and the special prosecutor, said the filing, have been engaged in an improper clandestine personal relationship during the pendency of this case, which has resulted in the special prosecutor and in turn the district attorney profiting significantly from this prosecution at the expense of the taxpayers. Unquote. And uh, I got to say it. Surprise, surprise, surprise. The prosecutor is Nathan Wade, a private attorney in the midst of a divorce who has, quote, little to no experience in trying felony cases, much less complex RICO actions, according to the 127-page filing, which seeks to have the charges against Roman dropped and both Willis and Wade disqualified from further participation in the, um, I'll put one word in here, bogus case. But wait, there's more. According to the complaint, Fanny's friend has raked in at least 653,000 bucks and upwards of 1 million bucks for handling the high-profile case. But by virtue of their relationship, that pile of taxpayer money benefits Fanny Willis, too, because they've traveled together to Florida, to the Caribbean, Napa Valley. And furthermore, Wade has bought tickets for the pair to travel on Norwegian and Royal Caribbean cruise liners. But no, we're still not done. In addition to his 250 bucks an hour rate, Wade has also billed Fulton County for thousands of dollars in air travel and hotel stays. And uh, what do you bet he wasn't alone? According to invoices attached to the filing, where he categorized them as interview and research trips. <laughs> and furthermore, Fanny contracted with Wade without proper approval, like from the Fulton County Board of Commissioners. The Wall Street Journal has found that no indication of his appointment was ever even discussed by that group, as required by law, much less voted upon. But wait, there's even more still, because the timing of the transactions, say the stories, was just downright rich. Wade filed for divorce the very day after his first contract with Fannie Willis began. That divorce is still pending, but Wade did manage to have the proceedings sealed, well, at least for now. And on this front, folks, even the Daily Mail's headline is, uh, well, informative. They call it an exclusive, and there's only parts of it that are. But it says invoices from a lawyer lover hired by Fannie Willis to prosecute Donald Trump in the election interference case show that he had two. That's more than one, isn't it? Two full eight-hour meetings with the Biden-Fuhrer White House counsel. No, nothing to see here, I'm sure. That alone kind of smells just a bit, doesn't it? And you got to love one of the sub-headlines here, the Fulton County DA, Fannie, hired attorney Nathan Wade as, quote, an anti-corruption special prosecutor. That one needs to just sit there and stink for a second, too, to investigate Trump's so-called election interference. So I guess one thing we know for sure, there is election interference going on here, but it's not being prosecuted. 
It's interference right from some highly paid and mobile, even bedrooms. And to their credit, the Daily Mail does have and reviewed the documents, the invoices, and the damning information, and posted them. And those invoices even include billing the taxpayers for the trip to meet twice with White House counsel for a full day. At least that's what they were billed for. And notes the Daily Mail, those White House meetings are the things that have been documented, but so far, quote, overlooked, they say, by the Waystream media. Zero Hedge observes that the filing on Monday sums up the shadiness of all these dealings pretty nicely. Quote, on the day before Wade filed for divorce, Willis entered into an agreement to pay Wade far above what any other prosecutor in her office was being paid, and she hid this agreement from Fulton County, despite Wade being the biggest single expenditure in her office for professional service contractors for both the years 2022 and 2023. Said former Georgia prosecutor Chris Timmons to the Wall Street Journal, quote, it's a bad look, and it's potentially criminal, assuming it's all true. And he added, and this is disturbing, folks, that while Willis's procurement of Wade's services may have been illegal, he doubts it would affect the indictment. And isn't that a damning bit of truth? Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. I am again your host, Mark Call, and the theme of big lies that continue to be told continues, which means there's really only one way we need to start this segment off, and that's with a look at arguably the biggest mass murderer in world history, or at least he's still trying, America's very own Dr. Mengele, Tony Fauci, who appeared for the first of a two-day set of closed-door interviews before the U.S. House of, well, whatever they are. One thing is for sure, they're not representing America as it used to be. Anyway, they're a select committee on the coronavirus pandemic. And to put it mildly, these stories all say that Tony Fauci, former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and they were good at building them, weren't they, frequently evaded questions. Gee, do you think about gain-of-function research and other great big whopping lies surrounding the government's ahem, mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic? And that's an understatement, folks. They planned it. Fauci executed it. And what we're seeing is, I don't know, has become kind of the standard way of avoiding prosecution for treason. And do you remember the constitutional definition? One thing's for sure, most of Congress and the whores in the White House certainly don't. It's making war against the American people. Isn't that what we've been seeing writ large? Chairman Brad Winstrup of Ohio, in a statement that followed Monday's interview, 
said that Fauci's, quote, testimony today, there's a misnomer, uncovered drastic and systemic failures in America's public health systems, unquote, and there's another one. And he added Fauci had, quote, no idea what was happening under his own jurisdiction at NIAID, unquote, and if you believe that, folks, you haven't been paying attention. Fauci knew blankety-blanket well what was going on. He just continues to lie about it or pretend that he doesn't remember. What, is he senile, too? I think if Congress really believed that, they'd let him be president, too, and not just the high priest of science. But they're really criticizing science because I represent science. Wonderful claim he didn't remember that. Well, anyway, according to The Hill and The Washington Times, Fauci offered his expertise, sick, on preparing for potential outbreaks in the future. Probably, folks, the ones they've already got planned. But... He couldn't, quote, remember many details about his advocacy of lockdowns, his flip-flopping on mask mandates, and his decision to allow government funding of gain-of-function research in China that, I would say it this way, almost certainly led to the pandemic, which is properly called that for a reason. Fauci, as it turned out, claimed that he did not recall various pertinent COVID-1984 information, conversations, or acts of treason more than 100 times, and that's just day one of the test line, and he, quote, profusely defended his previous congressional testimony, sick, where he stated that the NIH, National Institutes of Health, did not fund exactly what they did, the gain-of-function research in Wuhan, according to his subcommittee statement. He also, quote, repeatedly played semantics with the definition of gain of function in an attempt to avoid conceding that NIH did fund potentially dangerous research in China, said the subcommittee. Responding to those test lies, Rutgers University molecular biologist and frequent critic of bioweaponry or uh, gain of function research, Dr. Richard Ebright told the defender that, quote, Fauci repeatedly and flagrantly violated U.S. government policies implemented to protect the public from lab-generated pandemics. He lied brazenly to Congress about his policy violations in three Senate hearings in 2021 through 2022, and he lied brazenly to Congress about his policy violations again yesterday, unquote. Notably, during the next day of testifying, Fauci claimed that the six feet apart socialist distancing requirement promoted by federal health sick officials wasn't really actually based on any form of data. He characterized the development of the guidance by saying it, quote, just sort of appeared. I guess you might ask, what was the biggest actual admission? Well, after lying about gain of function and the so-called lab leak hypothesis, and literally making sure that scientific papers got twisted to provide plausible deniability, he finally admitted that the lab leak hypothesis really might not have been a conspiracy theory. Which, say analysts, marks a pretty significant walk back from his previous position, as well as having solicited a paper to disprove the hypothesis that was so damning to his credibility. Item, and I guess this one's another sign of the times as well, renowned so-called liberal intellectual and evolutionary biologist Brent Weinstein, brother of Eric Weinstein, sat down with Tucker Carlson over the weekend, where the two dissected the intricate web of various narratives surrounding the COVID-1984 pandemic and subsequent Zyklon B two-part bioweapon injection, along with related things like the big pharma industry and global shifts in governance and even public health sick policy. 
And what's surprising, folks, is how the liberal came right out and told us all what, well, most of us already knew, but at least even some of them are starting to figure it out. According to Weinstein, opposition to the official COVID narratives is kind of like taking on Goliath, with competent and courageous experts in various fields being aggressively censored, gee, do you think, during the pandemic, which led to the formation of what he called a dream team of dissenters. Now, what's truly interesting about this, folks, and kudos to both Brett Weinstein and Tucker Carlson for having the guts to finally come right out and say it, is that they're both directly addressing the level of evil. For example, one of the things Brett Weinstein said was, quote, I call the force we're up against Goliath. Goliath made a terrible mistake and made it most egregiously during COVID, which is that it took all the competent people, all the courageous people, and shoved them out of the institutions where they were hanging on. And it created, in so doing, the dream team. It created every player you could possibly want on your team to fight some historic battle against a terrible evil, he said, suggesting that the dream team is uniquely qualified to fight against those who botched the pandemic response with such deadly consequences. And he also discussed the demonization, as we have here and lots of others have as well on many occasions, of alternative treatments like hydroxychloroquine and, of course, ivermectin, and suggesting that the result was at least 17 million deaths from the not-vaccine. I was recently at a conference uh, in Romania on the COVID crisis. And so there was a lot of work trying to unpack what we actually understand. And I saw a credible estimate of something like 17 million deaths uh, globally from this technology. So 17 million deaths from the COVID vax? And yes, folks, we've heard that number quite a bit lately. And it's also nominally considered a low-end estimate. Others are saying it's probably well over 20 million. But hey, the point is, who's counting? Nobody who was actually involved in the mass murder, that's for sure. It's not hard to reach a number like that with a technology this dangerous. Now, to your deeper question, I think, let's steal man. So just for perspective, I mean, that's like the death toll of a global war. Yes, absolutely. It is, this is a, a, a great tragedy of history. So that proportion. But he wasn't done yet. Amazingly, there is no way in which it's over. I mean, we are still apparently recommending these things for healthy children. Never stood any chance of getting any benefit from them. Every chance of suffering harms that are uh, not only serious, but tragic on the basis that children have long lives ahead of them. If you ruin a, a child's immune system uh, in youth, they have to spend the rest of their presumably shortened life in that state. So, never made any sense that we were giving this to kids in the first place. The fact that we're still doing it when the emergency, to the extent there even was one, is clearly over. And he noted, as have many others, not only did it not prevent the disease, it didn't prevent transmission either. And the kids, by and large, weren't at any risk from the disease itself, not so the vaccine, regardless. Healthy kids don't die of COVID. But Weinstein wasn't done pointing out the level of evil we're dealing with. He went on to expose the World Health Organization, who, and their neo-new dark age agenda, as Zero Hedge and some of the coverage there puts it. They intend to use this, gee, here's a shocker, to consolidate power and kill hundreds of millions, if not billions, more. So you're saying that an international health organization could just end the First Amendment in the United States? Yes, and in fact, um, as much as this sounds, I know that it sounds preposterous, but it does the, not sound preposterous. The ability to do it is currently under discussion 
at the international level. And it's almost impossible to exaggerate how troubling what is being discussed is. In fact, I think it is fair to say that we are in the middle of a coup, that we are actually facing the elimination of our national and our personal sovereignty, and that that is the purpose of what is being constructed. And listen to this part, too. He's telling you that, yep, they tried to be deliberately obtuse so that most people wouldn't figure out exactly how evil what they've got planned is. That it has been um, written in such a way that you are, your eyes are supposed to glaze over That's right. as you attempt to sort out what is it, uh, what is under discussion. And if you do that, then come May of this year, your nation is almost certain to sign on to an agreement that in some utterly vaguely described future circumstance, a public health emergency, which the Director General of the World Health Organization has total liberty to define in any way that he sees fit. In other words, nothing prevents um, climate change from being declared a public health emergency that would trigger the provisions of these modifications. Or the next iteration of Dr. Mengele's bioweapons, be it Ebola or Marburg or whatever the new Booga Booga flu, Omega B-52 death variant or whatever, might be released. The scarier the better. And in the case that some emergency or some uh, pretense of an emergency shows up, the provisions that would kick in are um, beyond jaw-dropping. Unless, folks, you realize that they really do intend to kill you. And almost everybody that isn't a bought-and-paid-for whore for Big Pharma, Big Brother, or Big Satan is figuring that out now. Since one of the themes today has to do with things that are hidden being revealed, I'll follow that up with two quick stories. The first one, courtesy of Steve Watson, Modernity News, Zero Hedge, and a whole bunch of others, and it should be. The Telegraph, he notes, reports that they have found a 50% increase in leaks and accidents, sick, at laboratories in the UK since the outbreak of the COVID pandemic in 2020. And they warn of, quote, potentially catastrophic consequences for the future. <laughs> Sounds like predictive programming to me. And in case you're curious about the numbers, the investigation found that since January 2020, there have been 156 reports of lab leaks or accidents, about 42 per year, since the oh-so-successful rollout of the COVID pandemic, which is 50% higher than any years prior. And that's just in Britain, folks. Only takes one, of course. But think about it. When it comes to excuses, that means they've already got everything they need. And from RFK Jr.'s Children's Health Defense, we have this. A disabled vet has done some research. Steve Connolly, disabled Iraqi war combat vet and recovering alcoholic in Massachusetts, was horrified when he combined obituaries for the words suddenly and unexpectedly. And what he found even among people he knew personally. The retired social worker who's cared for the most severe and violently mental ill patients in Massachusetts said that what were formerly routine AA meetings became scenes of more suffering and carnage than he'd ever witnessed in war or even among the, quote, worst of the worst in mental hospitals. In all my life, he said, I've never seen this many people that I know dropping dead in this span of time. 
He listed anecdote after personal anecdote and then noted that a physician in the AA, whom he referred to as Dr. Michael, tried to debate Conley about what they called the jab. I tried to explain it to him. He said he didn't believe me. Two weeks later, he got the booster and died from a heart attack a few days later. Then they killed my friend, he said, and I started to investigate. What he found when he looked at deaths that were called suddenly or unexpectedly, those obituaries soared more than 62% across the entire U.S. after the rollout of the mRNA, not vaccines. And notes the piece, Conley's data trove, assembled with the help of a Massachusetts systems engineer and vaccine death investigator named John Bodine Sr., matches to a remarkable degree the unprecedented rise in U.S. excess deaths and disabilities via government data reported by former BlackRock hedge fund manager Ed Dowd, Dr. Pierre Corey, and others. The names of many of those others you hopefully know, and the article goes into great detail describing the level of investigation that went into making the point. But, as Bodine put it, something is very wrong with public health beginning not in the COVID year of 2020, but rather upon deployment of the transfecting gene therapy drug the government called a vaccine in 2021. He said, quote, this is an alarming trend that cannot be unseen. When does it all end? Connolly was asked. When do you stop looking at obituaries and get some peace? Answered Connolly, when they stop trying to kill us. When I see people start being perp-walked, Nuremberg too should happen. These people have to be held accountable, unquote. And you know, of course, don't hold your breath. If that's not bad enough, however, I can't help but think that this sign of the times may help to bring it home. A lot of people, says a piece from the Gateway Pundit, are fed up, though, with the whole subject of AI or artificial intelligence. Some of them think if they never hear about it again, that would be too soon. But uh, unfortunately, that's not going to be allowed because there's no denying, says this piece from Paul Saran, that these technologies are spreading like wildfire and soon will overwhelm anything that gets in their way. And once they enter the realm of regulations, as well as law enforcement and the judiciary, which is happening now, the implications for what's left of, well, God-given, once constitutionally protected rights, now some of them are called civil liberties, which is already a gross mischaracterization, but regardless... The implications are impossible to dismiss. Consider this, he says. In England, the thousand-year-old legal system there, wigs, robes, and all, is now giving judges permission to use artificial intelligence to help produce rulings. Yep, you heard that right. AP puts it this way. The courts and tribunals judiciary last month said that AI could help write opinions, but stressed they shouldn't, well, yet anyway, be used for research or legal analyses because the technology can fabricate information and provide misleading, inaccurate, and biased information. But hey, isn't that what they are being paid to do anyway? So not to worry your pretty little heads, folks. The master of the roles, Jeffrey Voss, second highest ranking judge in England and Wales, said judges do not need to shun the careful use of AI, but they must ensure that they project, I'm sorry, protect (laughs) confidence and take full personal responsibility, just like the Biden viewer does, just like Fannie does, right? Just like Fauci did and Bruce Raffensperger and a whole litany of other servants of Satan. Just like all these people are getting away with literal crimes against humanity have done. Yeah, take full personal responsibility for everything they produce. The dangers of the technology, cautions the author, have already been manifested in the infamous incident where two New York lawyers relied on ChatGPT to write a legal brief that ended up quoting fictional cases. And the two were fined because they got caught, this time, by an angry judge who called the work they had signed off on, quote, legal gibberish. Well, wait a minute, folks. Look at what just came out of Maine by an unelected appointed Secretary of State. Or the Colorado Supreme Court of Stooges. 
Isn't that how you destroy the rule of law in America and take down an actually elected president and prevent anything from its like ever arising again? How do you know whether these idiotic opinions were actually written by people, stupid and uneducated as they may be, or the very AI that are being programmed by exactly this kind of stupid, uneducated, historically illiterate, uh, well, hmm, what's the proper word here? You know what I'm thinking. Everybody's got one. But AI certainly makes talking through them so much easier. And when they end up doing the fact-checking, too, if they're not already, they don't even have to worry about getting caught. Anybody think they see where this is headed? Gary Kolianisi, law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, said this. It's certainly, referring to the British ruling here, one of the first, if not the first, published set of AI-related guidelines in the English language that applies broadly and is directed to judges and their staffs. The trouble, folks, if you read between the lines, is that it doesn't actually prohibit anything because it threatens they'll have to take full personal responsibility. Which, if you think about it, is about as toothless as a senile fake puppet chief exec that can't avoid walking into walls. Finally, I saw a story this week that shined a lot on yet another, which you might call causal factor. This time from Tyler Durden and Zero Hedge under the headline, Where Meritocracy Goes to Die. Talking about DEI, which, according to Elon Musk, and he nailed this one, folks, is racist, bigoted, collective punishment. Now, in case you missed it, begins the piece, the topic of DEI, that so-called diversity, equity, oot, inclusion, and the socialist policies promoting it, have been smashed back to top of mind recently as two billionaires battle in public over the benefits, alleged or absolutely satanic, the piece says detriments, of corporate DEI efforts or mandates. Mark Cuban, fighting out of the virtue-signaling pro-DEI corner, didn't like Elon Musk's pro-meritocracy, anti-DIE criticism of various diversity goals set, for example, by the United Airlines Pilot Training Academy. The airline has announced that they want their academy to have, quote, 50% of enrolled students who are women and or people of color, unquote. And, hmm, what do you bet they want all of them to be stupid enough to take the Zyklon B injection, too, and not know why they should be grounded for it? Well, anyway, Elon Musk wrote on X... And this is arguably even an understatement, folks. Quote, the airline industry can't find enough qualified pilots as it is, even without the insane DEI requirements, prompting Cuban to snap back that since I'm a nice guy and I want you to be fully informed, I'll share with you the benefit of the 60 seconds I spent looking, and that's probably about all he spent looking, folks, for how the program works. And he read it right from the propaganda webpage, so it must be true, right? prompting Zero Edge to say that Musk was not impressed, and he snapped back that, quote, Mark Cuban is a racist. And he added, rather humorously, I got to admit, and so do they, that, quote, the only way he can prove he's not racist and sexist is to put an Asian woman and a white woman on his basketball team, unquote, reiterating his suggestion about the NBA team that Cuban used to own, the Dallas Mavericks. Now, here I've got to stop for a second and reflect just a bit, because while the story suggests Musk meant this tongue-in-cheek, I can't help but think, are we really that over-the-top stupid, folks? Honestly, I could care less if this idiot wants to put some short Asian woman on his basketball team, or what kind of a quota he wants to put in place. If it destroys his team's profitability, well, it's his own fault, and he'll reap the rewards. Sadly, it'll ruin a lot of people's livelihoods, but it's probably less damaging than what he's doing otherwise. And here's the irony. I could really care less what happens to an NBA basketball team if they lose all their games. really doesn't hurt anybody. At least nobody dies. 
might even make a valuable point to people too stupid to see it any other way. That's not at all the same as if you put unqualified or worse, medically unfit pilots in a cockpit and then tell everybody you're oh so concerned about safety, you don't give a damn if they die in flight or not. Meanwhile, folks, we are literally seeing an entire society destroyed by this crap. The story goes on to note that there are other billionaires that are becoming unwoke as well, including hedge fund manager Bill Ackman, who called attention to the racist DEI policies last week, saying that DEI was in fact racist because, quote, reverse racism is racism. And Musk agreed, saying that DEI is just, quote, another word for racism. Which, folks, while true, and I've got to say this again, isn't the real threat. It's racism that's being mandated. That's what's actually far more destructive. Like I was just suggesting, if a company wants to be openly racist and as a result they go out of business, great. They deserved it, and it's an example to others. What DEI is trying to do is mandate that there is no alternative to their kind of racism, and that means no free market either. The story goes on to quote at length from a national best-selling book by a fellow named God, G-A-D, Sa'ad, S-A-A-D, called The Parasitic Mind and How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense who concluded a series of tweets pointing out that D-I-E, as he correctly rephrases it, and the author jumped into the fray, says Zero Hedge to unleash a series of truth bombs via Musk and X. Quote, I've been seeing some folks pointing to M. Cuban defending the so-called virtues of DIE, diversity, inclusion, and equity. But DIE isn't even remotely about removing systemic barriers that prevent some groups from flourishing, i.e. equality of opportunities. Instead, he said it's a, quote, frontal and fatal attack on the meritocratic ethos that shapes scientific and academic excellence. There is, he said, nothing noble, laudable, just, or fair about die. You either believe in meritocracy or you don't. Die is where meritocracy goes to die. And he backed it up with data. Imagine, he said later, that here we are in the 21st century where universities are openly posting job announcements that restrict the application pool to people of a certain skin hue. Oh, he said there just aren't enough transgender indigenous women of color who are full professors of pure mathematics. So, well, then we must implement die policies to permit such individuals to flourish. And that, he said, is how you get the Claudine gaze of the world and complete the transitioning of Harvard to nothing but a joke. Or after another string of somewhat humorous examples, he said, Wellesley College doesn't have a non-binary neuroscientist of color. Clearly, that's because of bigotry. So unleash the die Taliban. In the summary, notes Zero Hedge, Sa'ad pulls no punches, saying, quote, Die is grotesque. It is a cancer. It is racism. Die is bigotry. Die is non-meritocratic. Die kills innovation. It kills excellence. Die is collectivist punishment. Die, he said, is Ebola. And die, he said, is an affront to individual dignity. There's nothing redeemable about this racist ethos that masquerades as progressive social justice. (laughs) And Musk agreed by saying, so odd, but very true. I do think it's important, folks, that sometimes people are starting to see through some of the propaganda that has, well, destroyed so much of what was once called Western civilization, or the rule of law, or even one nation, or constitutional republic under God. So if you know the truth, it's past time to speak up.